Well, I'm excited today because we have John Loro on the show, and John's a longtime friend, wonderful guy, and and one of the best criminal defense lawyers that we have. And I'm going to be talking to John today about a little case you may have heard about, United States of America versus Donald J. Trump. Trump, welcome to the show, John. Welcome, David. And you know, it's an honor to be here with you, and you know how much I think of you and uh Simply put, you're the best, but uh, but I really appreciate being here. So, so John, um, let me start off with something I always ask folks, and I'll, and I'll ask you, how did you get involved in this case? It's a little bit of a long and winding road, but um, I have um, a relationship with one of the lawyers that uh, is close to President Trump, and he suggested that I uh, get involved. Several weeks ago, I I met with President Trump and we had some discussions about coming on board. And then ultimately he hired him, hired me. Um, I have to say initially, there was a sense that the uh, special counsel and the Justice Department would not move forward on this J6 indictment. So it came as a little bit of a surprise when it started to heat up and it looked like there actually would be an indictment. And and I know at least in the Miami case, uh, I, I should say the Fort Pierce case and some of his other cases, he's put together teams. Are, are you going to be part of a team, or or is it just going to be you and and Todd Blanche? Definitely uh, a team. Right now, it's the team is is Todd and and me. And as you know, Todd's an outstanding lawyer and a, a fearless defense lawyer. Um, we're working uh, in as a co-counsel right now and dividing up responsibility. Todd is also working on what everybody calls the documents case in Florida. Right. Um, I'm just working on the J6. Obviously, this is a very, very large and significant matter. It's going to take up um, a lot of time. I assume at some point there'll be other lawyers on, on, the, on board. Um, but essentially right now, uh, Todd and, and me are handling it. So, John, you know, whenever you get involved in a case as a criminal defense lawyer, you have to sort of decide if the case is right, if you have enough time, if the if the client's right. Um, you're at a point in your career where you can take whatever case you want. Um, did you hesitate in taking this case? Was it a difficult decision or or when you heard about the case, you jumped right in? I really didn't hesitate. I thought the issues would be so extremely interesting. I thought the challenges would be. Uh, enormous, but uh, David, that's this is the life we've chosen, right? <laughs> and we 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 enjoy these types of tough criminal cases. And I know you've been through uh, so many difficult cases and successfully walk clients through. And I think there's a part of us that always believes that we can do it and and we can get the client to the other side of freedom. So it's always uh, a, a hard challenge. This case presents unique issues, though, as I think you know. First of all, anybody representing President Trump becomes a target, himself or herself. So the lawyers are now being targeted, both in social media, in the press, and more fundamentally by some uh, interest groups that are uh, seeking to file uh, complaints or grievances against lawyers. So it's a very dangerous, it's a very insidious atmosphere right now. So it's not just taking on a client that is um, 
presents challenging issues, you're you're also kind of putting yourself at risk. And I know our our mutual friend Alan um, Dershowitz has spoken about that and written about that. Uh, and and Alan has been subjected to uh, vicious attacks, uh, unfair attacks. But uh, you know, as they said, the first thing that that you need to do in the road to, to totalitarianism is kill all the lawyers, ah. and, and that's you know kind of what's going on here. So have you have you already experienced that in the in the brief time you've been in? Vicious attacks. I get um, you know a hundred phone calls in my office, um, uh, most of which are are you know ugly and <laughs> terrible people you know, sort of emoting in a, in a very nasty way. I get some very nice calls as well, but uh, given the passion of the moment, it uh, has really set people off. And, and there's a lot of anger, which is one of the reasons why I'm really disappointed the Department of Justice brought this case right now. It's in the middle of an election cycle. It's in the middle of a time when people are really, um, passions are high and emotions are high. And to bring a case like this, is is just really dividing our country even more unnecessarily. So I'm glad to be involved in the case, but I'm so sad that it was brought at this time. When when should it have been brought? If if it, I mean, obviously you think it never should have been brought, but but you you think they should wait until after the election? Is that the idea? Which they can do because there's no statute of limitations problem. There's no issue there. They could have even indicted and sealed the indictment. But but what was so disappointing is that it was brought right in the middle of, of the election cycle. And it's creating enormous problems because you have a client who is not only a client in a criminal case, but also a political candidate that wants to speak out on these issues. And it presents a, a, a very difficult intersection between your role as a lawyer for a client and your role as a lawyer for a client who's a candidate for president. And I should add the leading Republican candidate right now. Yeah. So it creates all kinds of issues that we've never seen before in a legal case. I, but, but, you know, he talks about the indictments, your client, as if they're helping him on the campaign trail. Um, I don't know if that's that's rhetoric or, or if it's if it's not true. But, you know, he seems to think that the indictments have been helping him. David, I'm not a politician, but yeah. I believe they are and they are invigorating him and his campaign. He feels that uh, he's under attack, but he's representing uh, the people that support him. And, and he's taking this on as a as a way of showing his uh, his leadership and his resilience. But um, there, there's no there's no lack of fight in him at all. I, I was with him after the arraignment and we came back in the car together and he was upbeat and positive and moving ahead on some campaign issues. But um, you know, a lot of our clients are are thrown into a fit of depression when when they face something like this. But for President Trump, it's just the opposite. Is is he a difficult client, John? Because you know we've we've seen in the press um, his tweets, his social media posts. He's gone after folks, um, uh, including the prosecutor, uh, and 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 been pretty pretty uh, hard. Is is that difficult to deal with as a lawyer? It's a unique setting because normally what we tell clients, of course, is don't say anything, don't make any public comments with President Trump because of the campaign. And I would say because of his personality, 
it's impossible for him not to speak out on the issue. So it does present unique circumstances. My approach as a lawyer obviously is very different than his as a candidate, but he feels strongly that he needs to speak out. And he also in particular looks at this prosecution as a political prosecution. So as a result, um, uh, I think in his mind, uh, it's sort of fair game from a political perspective to make these comments. It's it's got to be hard on you though, because he's he's got two hats to wear. You know, the political hat and the criminal defendant hat. And and your interests, of course, are are solely in representing him as a criminal defendant and as his lawyer. So when he makes comments like Jack Smith's deranged or or things like this, you know, it gets brought up to the judge it's got to make you uneasy a little bit because because judges are of course are going to react to that i have a responsibility certainly as an officer of the court to conduct the proceedings in a dignified manner and i will do that at all times um to the extent that um you know i can make any appropriate suggestions to a client i do yeah um, but as we know uh, David, sometimes clients follow our suggestions, sometimes they don't. But um, I think I think also what's happening now, given the onslaught of these cases, is that um, judges and prosecutors kind of understand the dynamic uh, in terms of there being, you know, sort of a campaign going on. And I think it's a little bit different than our standard case where we would pull out our hair out if if a client commented on a prosecutor or a judge. Right. It, it is interesting because the, the prosecutors put the the social media post, uh, one of them in, in a motion for a protective order, which it, to me, the you can complain about his post if you want, but I'm not sure what it had to do with the protective order. It didn't really have anything to do with the protective order, but uh, what the government proposed was a a protective order that would prevent the dissemination of any discovery material that uh, the government turned over. So for example, if the government turned over a memorandum that was exculpatory and that um, was indicative that, that President Trump had no criminal intent, um, the, the government basically wants to keep that secret and, and has said, we will not allow you to turn that over to the press. And we feel strongly that that's not the proper role of a protective order. Um, and, and unfortunately, uh, in my view, what the government did is they used one of his political tweets to suggest that uh, that was a reason to keep all of this uh, discovery material under wraps. We're dealing with that issue. In fact, we're dealing with it over the weekend. We hope that it gets resolved in some way. I think the judge is going to have to step in and resolve it. But you're right. The 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 motion for protective order really doesn't have anything to do with the tweets. And and by the way, some people in the press have characterized it as a gag order. It's really not a gag order. It's just a limitation on disclosure of discovery. It it is weird because we've seen these motions for protective orders in lots of white collar cases lately. And and you know you and I are dealing with them in sort of the run of the mill case. Um, and 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 they're getting more expansive and more expansive in every case. Uh, it makes no sense to me these protective orders. I, I mean, they're they're really limiting um, how a defend defendant and his lawyer can defend the case in a lot of situations. 
David, it's awful. I think as criminal defense lawyers, we have to fight back and we have to really start looking at an organized way of responding to these. I mean, in this in this one, one order, they suggested that counsel would have the responsibility to look over the client's notes and make sure that certain things were not in the notes. It, I, I've never heard of such an intrusion in the attorney-client relationship, but unfortunately, the prosecutors are getting away with it and judges are entering these orders, but I couldn't agree with you more. We need to fight back. These are, these are terrible orders. So let me ask you, because you you did something today that is is known as the full Ginsburg. You you were on every news show this morning, um, which is which is tough to do. How did you do it? How did you get to each one? I would never ordinarily do it. And yeah. I don't like to do it, honestly, because I um, uh, you're, you're you're subjected to a lot of misinformation in the press when you do it and after you do it, where your words are are scrambled and jumbled and misinterpreted and sometimes, you know, very flagrantly misinterpreted. But yeah. um, because of the the fact that this is a a indictment that implicates so many political issues and so many important constitutional issues, the consensus was that the president's lawyer had to speak out on these issues publicly. And in particular, because of the fact that it's been brought in the campaign cycle, it was important to advise the public about uh, our position regarding some of these important legal issues. So for that reason, we decided to go, uh, I guess they, they do call it the full Ginsburg. It yeah. alludes to uh, Monica Lewinsky and back in the Bill Clinton days. Uh, it's, it's not easy uh, and, and it's gotten harder because the press is so combative. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a matter of you know, listening to a lawyer's points. It's about battling and, and getting competing narratives out. It's very different than when Mr. Ginsburg did it 20 years ago. Well, it was really interesting to watch. And, and um, you know, some of the media, I, you know, a lot of them were, were debating with you. It was, it was, it was interesting. And, and you know, they only have a limited amount of time. I, I thought the in, first interview you did with Caitlin Collins, um, you know, she's obviously very tough and smart and and both of you were great. Um, and a lot of the, the interviews today were great too, because it, it was a good back and forth. I have to say, I enjoy the more combative interviews for <laughs> yeah. reason. And also, candidly, the, the combative issues or, or interviews sometimes raise issues that you haven't thought about. Because we're in our own little bubble as defense lawyers, and, and we're drinking our defense Kool-Aid, and it's good to, to battle it out, particularly with people in the media who are obviously intelligent and smart, maybe not trained in the law, which is good, because they're asking questions that maybe a juror would ask. So I don't mind it. It has, it has its benefits. Let me say that. So, so were you on set on uh, for these uh, interviews today, or only a, a couple of them, or how it's did it like work? a roller coaster? Because <laughs> yeah. you, you literally go from from studio to studio, and you do a number of these in a van, in a minivan, in in isolation, where you're not next to a human being. You're just in a in either a room or a van all by yourself, and you're talking into a um, a camera that doesn't have. A person on the other side. So you're talking into like a dark image. Um, so I don't know how it comes across, but it it's a little bit awkward, a little bit difficult. But again, you know, you're trying to make some of the defense points and really educating the public more broadly. 
So, John, um, you know, you've obviously been doing the press. Your co-counsel, Todd Blanche, who, who, by the way, I had on a few weeks ago, and and uh, I, I love Todd. He's great, but much different style, much more low-key, has not been in the media at all. Um, you know, has, I think my podcast was his only interview. He he has been out of the media. Um, so why the different approaches between you and him? Is that just a style thing or is that something you were asked to do? As you know, Todd is an outstanding, outstanding lawyer, and it's yeah. been such an honor and pleasure to work with him. Uh, we complement each other, I think, on different, um, uh, you know, things that we like to do and enjoy. Um, I, I kind of like dealing with the press and the press issues. Um, I, you know, I think, I think Todd enjoys other aspects of of the trial work and litigation. So we're just dividing up the workload in a way that makes sense for us. Good. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. And, and you know, you can just see it, um, the, the different styles. And and it, it's good that you guys complement each other. I like dealing with the press, too. And I think it's important to get out there for a client, especially some, obviously in a high profile case like this, because otherwise you just have sort of the talking heads out there who who are making a narrative against your client. It's very difficult. You have to combat that. I couldn't agree more, particularly in some of the high profile cases where your client absolutely wants you to deal with these issues, including the narrative of the issue. And I know, David, you just finished an, an outstanding case involving a political figure in Florida very successfully. And I'm sure he wanted you to uh, speak with the press and get his message out more broadly. It, it was interesting, obviously, a, a completely different scale on a, on a thousand to one. But, you know, the local media in that case, in the Andrew Gillum case, would come to the court every day. And, you know, they we I would speak to them uh, at all the breaks before trial, after trial at the breaks and try to explain to them what happened at the hearing and, and have an interaction, because I thought it was important to try to shape what was going out, not not in a not in a spin way, but so that it was accurate, because I thought making sure the press reported accurately on the trial was important, not just for the client, but for for the public to understand. We thought we were doing uh, we were winning every day. So we we wanted we didn't want, um, uh, you know, the media to say it in a in a negative light. I couldn't agree more once again. And I find sometimes the local media is a little bit more um, kind of attuned to trying to get to a right answer, whereas some of the cable networks are kind of pushing their own agenda and it's it's motivated perhaps a little bit more in terms of an entertainment factor. But, but either way, I think lawyers in this modern age have to get their clients' position out in some way. Now, it's a risk because you're, you're making statements, you're right. saying things that could reveal defense strategy, but I think you have to consider those risks and in the appropriate case, absolutely make a presentation to the press and engage with the press. I will say that the national media is interesting, right? Because obviously the, the hosts are very smart, but they have as their guests, all of these very slanted former prosecutors. So, you know, it, it bothers me that they don't have real criminal defense lawyers, at least to debate uh, the former prosecutors who are taking the position that, you know, they read the indictment and they say, I mean, there's no other verdict but guilty after reading this indictment. They literally say things like that. It's very disturbing to me because, you know, we're we're dying the wool defense lawyers. I mean, 
you know, if if Hunter Biden called me tomorrow, I'd take that case in a heartbeat. You know, yeah. I mean, no, it doesn't matter. We we defend our clients, you know, to 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 the death professionally, obviously, but as hard as we can. Um, but but some of the legal pundits, they they look at the case as, um, you know, how can this end in conviction as opposed to, wow, let's look at this critically from a defense standpoint. And unfortunately, these uh, news media outlets, they love to say, oh, we have the former federal prosecutor from blah, 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 as if that gives you some kind of credentials to talk about criminal cases. But the reality is that true defense lawyers are underrepresented on these shows. I mean, there, there are some and, and I and I respect these guys a lot and get along with them. You know, some of them have never tried a criminal case um, or tried a defense have, case. They may have been a prosecutor their whole life. That, that, that's what I mean. They, they, yeah. some, some of them have never represented a criminal defendant. Some of them have never given a closing argument for an individual. So, you know, it's it's they only see the world in one way. And so it's unsurprising when when, you know, there are three of them with with a host talking about a case that they say things like that's not a defense or you know it doesn't matter criminal intent doesn't matter because he did it i mean it's 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 odd to hear those kinds of things come out of their mouth i'll give you a perfect example uh bill barr was on former attorney general and he's going advice of counsel that's not a defense first amendment that's not a defense and and i'm thinking to myself you know, like, dude, you haven't tried a criminal case in your life, okay? You don't know how to build a, a narrative, a defense narrative. All of these are issues you throw out in front of the jury. My gosh. Well, the, the advice of counsel, when, when, when I saw him on that interview say, well, we'll have to hear from Trump for the advice of counsel, so that's not going to be a defense, just totally wrong. Advice of counsel can be raised without a defendant testifying. It happens all the time in white collar cases. We see it yeah. all the time. That was just a misstatement. Yes, yes. No, I know, I know. And then uh, I uh, today, you know, one question was um, from one of the the uh, people that was uh, one of the hosts said, uh, you know, Mike Pence said that President Trump. Uh, his suggestion of of um, not counting electoral ballots would be a violation of the Constitution. Isn't that criminal? And I said, well, you know, a, a technical violation or a violation of the Constitution doesn't automatically mean that there's a criminal offense. You still have the prosecution burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, it comes out in the media, you know, Lauro admits that there's a technical violation of the Constitution, but still says it's not criminal. And unfortunately, you know, these words get twisted, but, but um, you know, we as defense lawyers build a defense narrative from the ground up, and we really are our client's voice in the courtroom, and oftentimes our clients don't testify. So we have to take advantage of all of these issues, and certainly from President Trump's standpoint, the legal advice that he was getting is critical to his defense. Of course, of course. I, I wish every time a police officer violated the Fourth Amendment, it was a criminal, uh, there, there was a crime committed. Um, so so let's talk about um, venue for a second, because there's been a lot of discussion about the D.C. venue and whether that's an appropriate venue. Um, are, are you going to be moving to change venue, John? We are at the appropriate time. We need to do some work on, uh, I think, some, some hard quantitative analysis of, of where people are in terms of thought process and, and you know, what, the, what the venue looks like. Um, 
Washington, D.C. went 95% for Joe Biden, 5% for Donald Trump. Um, the prosecutor, uh, Jack Smith, made some, I think, unfortunate remarks in announcing the indictment and alluding to the, the violence that occurred on January 6th, even though President Trump was not charged with inciting violence. So we have some challenges in front of us regarding getting a fair and unbiased jury. So you can expect that we're going to try to move venue. And does the political leanings of the jury, I mean, is that a determinative factor? Because I guess the, you know, the opposite would might be true in Fort Pierce, right? Uh, Trump got a majority of voters in Fort Pierce, I think. And so would there be an appropriate, you know, should, should that case have been brought by the government down there if if a majority of voters voted for Trump? Fascinating question in many respects. I, I don't think political affiliation is, is the end all and be all. I think it's one factor, but I think you have to do some polling and get some uh, social science and, and quantitative analysis in terms of how people are reacting to the indictment. I think that's gonna be an important part of our motion. Uh, Fort Pierce is, I looked at the statistics, it seems to be fairly evenly divided politically, even though, I think uh, uh, President Trump carried uh, that that area or that county in general. Um, so I think I think you know the political piece is 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 in play to some extent. But I think you're right. It's more of whether or not you're facing this this sort of roadblock of bias and whether the community in which you're trying the case has been affected in in an emotional, passionate way, which certainly um, Washington D.C. was. On, on January 6th compared to Fort Pierce, which really doesn't have that kind of emotional connection. But I will say this of greater importance is the, the, the special prosecutors or special counsel's decision to bring the, that case in South Florida, I think is motivating them now to try to play a, a hurry up offense in DC and try to get to trial in two months. They're suggesting that they can try this case within the speedy trial clock, which is 70 days. Of course, that's absurd, but they're they're literally, they wanna meet with us over the weekend to produce discovery. Have you ever heard of a prosecutor saying I'm available on Saturday and Sunday to talk about my case? I wish they'd answer the phone during normal business hours in the normal case. Um, but before we get to the speedy trial part, um, let me just stick with Venue for one second, because you, sure. suggested, you suggested West Virginia, and, I, and I'll push you a little on that because um, a lot of people will view that as, well, they're just trying to get to a, a location where, where Trump uh, carried the day. So why West Virginia and why not? Shouldn't we find a place where it's where it's 50-50? Um, well, interestingly enough, northern West Virginia is a fairly uh, a split area of the state. Southern West Virginia tends to be more bedrock uh, uh, Republican. But but we looked uh, a little bit at, at the northern part of the state, which is in very close proximity to uh, to Washington DC. And it is a very diverse, evenly divided area, which at least from all, you know, our initial uh, analysis would make a good spot. I'm not wedded to West Virginia by any means, yeah. but I think we have to get out of sort of the Washington DC mindset, which includes some of the suburbs in, in Maryland and, and Northern Virginia. I, I, you know, I went to school there. I know the area very well. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's a lovely place to live, um, but, but, you know, politically, it's a lot different than some other places around the country. 
I worked there um, in DC after after a clerkship and and worked at Williams and Connolly. I I always try to think about what Edward Bennett Williams would be doing in a case like this. Um, you know, he famously said he don't talk to the press, but of course he represented the Washington Post, National Enquirer, all the different law firms, so he could he could talk behind the scenes. Yes, there was a lovely biography I, uh, years ago, The Man to See. I the think best. One of the best books about criminal defense and and obviously a hero to both of us um, and and uh, a different era, though, certainly for a defense lawyer. Very, very, very much, different. very much. So, by the way, you know, D.C., I mean, as you know, is typically considered very defense friendly uh, in, in the normal case. And Fort Pierce is usually considered very government friendly. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting that that both sides have sort of think of them as in reverse in this case. Yes. And, and again, I think that's part of the political passion, candidly. Right. And, you know, we used to think of of conservative uh, jurors as being very pro-government or pro-police. And, and now that may reverse the script, you know, for our cases, because it may very well be that we want to take a look at more conservative voters who might be um, a bit more cynical about government and, and government agencies like the FBI or the IRS. So from a white collar perspective, uh, I think we, we may have to look at these issues with, with, a, with a new pair of eyes. I, I tried a case recently where our focus groups told us we wanted older conservative men on, on the jury, which never would have been the case in the older, you know, even you five, go. 10 years ago. Um, I agree. Yeah, yeah it, it's it's wild. So so let me ask you another issue, uh, the recusal issue, John. So, you know, obviously your client has already called for the recusal of the judge. Um, you haven't filed a motion yet. Is that coming? Is a motion coming on recusal? I uh, need to take a hard look at this issue from a from a legal perspective and want to make sure that it is correctly and uh, uh, exhaustively analyzed. So We've made no uh, final decision on that issue. It has to be really looked at with a with a fine tooth comb. It raises a lot of issues. I think um, the president's response was was more from you know a, a, a layman's political sense of of can I get a fair trial in 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 front of um, a judge who let's say was appointed by by a Democratic president. Um, but uh, but we haven't made a final decision on that issue at all. And and that's something that requires a great deal of legal research and assessment. Right. It's, it, it is interesting, again, just to compare the documents case, right? Because in that case, you have a, a Trump appointed judge. And so it, it is it is dangerous, I think, to start getting into, well, who appointed this judge? And therefore, let's let's that that judge can only be fair to one side or the other. Um, I, I do I do think the bar will get a little nervous with those kinds of arguments, right? And the judge in the documents case has been criticized by kind of, you know, the, the left side sure. of the spectrum and viciously criticized. Uh, so I, I think as lawyers, we have to be very careful of, of those issues and handle them with the utmost delicacy and the utmost appropriateness. I know Judge Chutkin has already denied um, a motion to give you a few extra days and, and is making you guys work over the weekend. I, I will say um, she was on a panel with my partner, Margot Moss, recently, and I, and I got to meet her. She's smart and lovely. Um, so I hope you have a good experience with her. I'm hoping as well. And as you know, David, we always uh, 
you, you know, we, we, we pull our hair out when we have these deadlines. Uh, the government filed something on, on a Friday and uh, they wanted an immediate response Friday evening, but, uh, but we're getting there. I, you know, I don't ask for much of judges these days because I typically expect them to rule against the defense. The only thing that I really care about is like, can you work with my calendar? That's it. And and so the judges that aren't willing to do that is it, it really bothers me that it, just a couple extra days. I'm not sure what the problem with a couple extra days was. Several years ago, I had a case in South Carolina, very, very lovely gentleman who since passed away, Judge Saul Blot, and really an institution in South Carolina. When we would pull out his calendar, he would make sure that, you know, we had enough time around Mother's Day or Father's Day. He would ask, you know, does anybody have any family commitments? Is any, is, are there birthdays? It, it was um, such a different experience than what we're used to. Yeah, no, that's that's how it should be. What, one issue that the left and the right seems to agree on, and I've written about this, and, and one of the first things you said is there needs to be cameras in the courtroom. It it kills me that we're, we're relying on a sketch artist and we're relying on somebody to summarize how they looked. Or, why can't we get cameras in the courtroom? I I have no idea. And it works in Florida for us. There's no, uh, you know, no gamesmanship. And what what I think is really unfortunate is in the high profile cases, the 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 case itself is being explained through the lenses of people that you know maybe aren't particularly trained in the law, but they're 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 really also giving their own giving way to their own biases and their own analyses as opposed to letting people just see for themselves what's going on. And I think it has a such an important educational value to allow ordinary citizens to see how the legal system works. Because right now, a lot of people have no idea what goes on in a trial. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Florida in a case that you and I both have some relation to the the um, the, the Charlie Adelson case. Um, that will be televised the first two trials of of co-defendants were televised and there were no issues. That's as high profile as you get. And there was not an issue about uh, the trial or or the lawyers playing up or anything like that. It was seamless. I was at both trials. Obviously, I'll be at the next one. There were there are absolutely no problems whatsoever. And this concept that lawyers are going to ham it up for the camera is just ludicrous because um, if you do that, you're going to lose credibility in front of the jury. You're going to hurt your client. And uh, I didn't see any of that. The other thing that I noticed, and you probably see it as well, is over time, you even forget the cameras are there. Right. You just try your case and you don't even think about the camera. Let, let me ask you, you say you'll be at the next trial, not to talk about that case, uh, but but how do you keep up your practice with this case? I mean, you're going to be working 24-7 when you do have to go to that trial, when your client testifies at that case. I mean, are you going to be able to carve out the time or are you going to you going to have other people help you out? No, I'll definitely be there for Wendy without any doubt whatsoever. So I uh, uh, no, I'll be there. As as you know, in a small firm, we always have challenges and always yeah. have a lot of demands on our time. And um, and again, this is the life we've chosen, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we could have gone a different route, David, being a big firm and have 
you know, all the other uh, uh, characteristics of that kind of practice, but, but we made a decision to go in this in this direction, which I would never change, obviously, because of the love that both of us have for trial work and representing individual clients. So you mentioned speedy trial. You said the government wants to get this case tried by the end of the year, speedy trial clock. I mean, to me, regardless of what you think of the case, it, it's crazy to think that this case should be tried that quickly. I mean, it, do, what what's your what do you when do you think the case should be tried and and how long do you need to get ready for it in large white collar cases of this magnitude we're looking at probably between 300 and 400 potential witnesses including an enormity of of um evidence of of uh pulled evidence it went through a congressional hearing january 6th uh, a grand jury proceeding we're looking at, at you know, terabytes of electronic evidence. Uh, in, in a case like this, I've never seen a white collar case go to trial in less than two years of this magnitude. And what people don't realize is the lawyers have to go through all the evidence. You don't just show up in, in trial. Tr trial work is, is hard work because of the preparation. You know, it's, you don't just show up and start cross-examining witnesses. You have to know everything about the witness, everything they said, read all the documents. And, and it's, a, it's an enormous undertaking. The government has had three and a half years to investigate this case. They've had over 60 lawyers and investigators working on it, and they want to put us on trial in, in 60 days. It's just absurd. It really is absurd. One of my favorite all-time shows, I don't know if you've ever seen it, was The Practice. Yeah. about a criminal. It was a great show. You, you kind of look like Bobby Donald, by the way. But uh, the funny thing about that show is they, they um, you know, they would always have somebody would be charged with murder and they'd be in trial within two weeks. Uh, you know, that was they the, get it resolved in 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, the show was great, but but getting to trial quickly is just it's in a and especially in a case that's so complex. I mean, it, it, it's hard to imagine that this would get tried before the election. I guess even assuming you're ready, should it be tried before the election? The problem with trying it before the election, first of all, given the magnitude of the, the evidence that we have to look through, there's just no way that, that a human being, one lawyer, two lawyers, three lawyers could get ready before, um, before November. But let's assume we, we, we start trial in July. We're literally going to have a, a inevitable, a, a presidential candidate sitting at trial for weeks on end, because in the federal system, you have to be present during trial as a defendant, you don't get to walk away. So I, I just don't see it as being a meaningful, right. um, a meaningful approach. And plus, the government's obligation is to do justice in a case, not to just win a case. And if the defense is saying we need more time to get ready, then the government should recognize that the defendant's Sixth Amendment rights to counsel and rights to due process outweigh any prosecutorial zeal to bring a defendant to trial before an election. A couple of the potential witnesses is one of the Republican rivals, his former Vice President Pence, who, who is out there talking today that, you know, he says he's not going to be a witness. I don't think he realizes he doesn't have that choice. Uh, David, I've already read his book twice. I'm I'm starting to prepare Sorry. my cross-examination of him. Uh, I'm trying to get into his head, frankly. I'm trying to um, understand his personality, who he is, 
you know, ex exactly what we do as defense lawyers. I'm, I'm trying to, to be Mike Pence in a sense to understand where he's coming from. And he's going to be a central witness in the case. I don't see how he's not a witness, but I have to make him a defense witness. I can't, I can't allow him to be a prosecution witness. Well, I assume if the government doesn't call him, you'll call him. 100%. Right. Does he, it doesn't sound like he realizes that you can subpoena him and he'll have to be there and have to testify. I don't see how they can do an obstruction case involving Mike Pence without calling Mike Pence. Well, that, that that's a good point. Although we've seen many cases where they try to avoid these witnesses uh, that that are, are sort of wishy-washy for them. And it sounds like he's 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 not willing to come out and say what the government needs him to say. I, I agree. He really hedges because I, I actually commented on that today. He's never said that he thought the, the the interaction with President Trump was criminal or that he was pushing back uh, in terms of, of uh, any potential criminal violation. He certainly disagreed with the president's counsel, John Eastman, and he disagreed with some of the um, options that were presented in terms of their constitutionality, but, but he's never raised um, any, any concept that he thought these discussions were criminal or or fraught with with criminal liability. Let me ask you just a couple more topics because I know you're so busy. And I again, thank you for doing this. The the first def amendment defense that you've raised, um, a couple things about that. One, was it was it a tough decision to put that out there because one of the only things we have going for us as criminal defense lawyers is this element of surprise. Now now everybody knows the defense and is sort of digging into it really hard and and you hear you know the, the talking heads um trying to dismantle this first amendment defense was it a tough choice to put that out there or or did you want to educate everybody a couple of things it certainly was anticipated by the prosecution in fact they even allude to it in in their indictment that he has a fifth, he has a first amendment right so we knew it would be out there um candidly we had some pre-indictment discussions with the prosecution, where we uh, discussed the, uh, you know, the, the merits of not going forward. And so they, they knew about it. They knew about it. Right. And, and you know, it's interesting because the former prosecutors who know better, who are out there, are saying, listen, speech can be criminal, like if you agree to rob a bank. Well, but obviously very different. And, and that analogy that they're using, the robbing, the agreeing to rob the bank analogy is, is, is so easily debunked. What, what do you, have you responded to that publicly yet? Or I, I have, it drives me crazy as it yeah. drives you crazy because they use examples of like lying to the SEC or lying on a prospectus, you know, that that's somehow criminal. Of course it is, but that doesn't involve political speech and policy. What we're talking about here is petitioning political leadership for either a redress of grievances or taking a political position. Political speech is the most protected speech under the Constitution, and it's a strict scrutiny analysis. Um, commercial speech doesn't receive that same degree of protection. So the talking heads, candidly, on this one don't know what they're talking about. Are you going to file a motion to dismiss? I assume yes. And, and I think on that particular issue, you're entitled to an interlocutory appeal all the way up. I'm looking at that. And in fact, Professor, Professor Dershowitz has raised that in some of his um, commentary. And, and, uh, and I listen to him carefully, as you do as well. So I am, I am looking at that issue. 
Yeah, it will be interesting because that alone, that motion, and if you can take it up, I mean, that appeal, all it could go all the way to the Supreme Court before trial. So if that issue does get litigated, the, the chances of this case going to trial before, uh, b- before that goes all the way up is very slim. All of these issues are ripe for Supreme Court analysis, the, the application of the First Amendment, the question of whether or not President Trump has immunity since they're indicting him for acts that he took as president, the question of, of the Klein conspiracy, whether or not it's applicable in a, in a political case such as this, uh, the interpretation of the obstruction statute, 18 U.S.C. 1512, and whether or not it's properly applicable and the question of corrupt intent. This, this, is, this is like a law seminar on white collar issues, just this one case. You know, the obstruction, um, just real quick, the obstruction statute, that statute, uh, uh, another section of it was litigated in the Arthur Anderson case. Everybody back then talked about how bad Arthur Anderson was, um, that they should go down. It ruined the company. And then the Supreme Court 9-0 reversed the conviction. Some of the talking heads that are out there were prosecutors in that case. I, I know one in particular. (laughs) <laughs> I do too. And it bothers me because he w- he still believes that that prosecution was righteous, even though 9-0, it got, it got thrown away. And, and look what they did to the former governor of Virginia, that they prosecuted him on this wackadoodle theory and it got reversed 9-0. And then Senator Menendez in New Jersey was prosecuted in a case that, that went nowhere. So you and I are, are rightly suspicious of when prosecutors try to expand the scope of criminal law in a high-profile case and really try to fit a a high-profile case into a statute. And um, they often think they can do that, and then they get whacked down by the Supreme Court or another court. But in the meantime, you've ruined a person's life, you've ruined a company, and it's terribly devastating. And then, of course, you go and you get hired by a big firm and you become a you know a big partner at some big firm. But you know the reality is, look at the destruction in the wake. It's 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 very difficult. And one of the things you said up front about you know life we chose. I think part of us have some uh, wiring that's messed up for us doing these kinds of. Uh, cases, John. But let me ask one other issue before, because before I, I know we're limited on time, is it's going to be hard to keep your client off the stand in this case. And I know a bunch of people have asked you whether he'll testify. And of course, you can't say whether he'll testify or not. Um, but people expect politicians to testify. One of the very difficult decisions we made in the Andrew Gillum case was not to call him because the government completely failed. And let me tell you, there's no more gifted speaker than Andrew Gillum. And and he is, he is, he could have made mincemeat of the prosecutors. I, I I believe he would have crushed them, but we didn't call him. Um he listened to us. Is Trump gonna listen to you if you tell him not to testify? <laughs> I'm not sure I can answer that right now. Yeah. But but I will say this that it's an important tactical issue. But my most favorite case, favorite cases is to develop. The, the defense narrative on cross-examination and pound away at uh, cross on, on the government's witnesses and then not put on any case at all and go straight to closing argument and keep it as neat and clean as possible and not put a client on the witness stand. I, I hate when clients testify. I just hate it because you've now lost control over the narrative and jurors can pick up on the slightest, smallest things to find a conviction. 
And, and also, in many instances, you want to preserve legal issues so that the appellate courts don't look at this as a referendum on a client's credibility as opposed to focusing on the legal issues. So we have to take all of that into account. But my most favorite case is never putting on any evidence and going right to closing argument and saying why the government has improved this case. So, so great. So great. Well, John Lauro, thank you so much for doing this. I know how busy you are, how much pressure you're under and how difficult a time this is. So thank you. No, thank you, David. Always good to see you. I can't wait to see you in person as well. And God bless.